Well, amen. Thank you, ladies, for sharing with us this morning. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution, that would be a good one, right? That we would adore the Lord more and more and more this year than we did last year. Uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 this morning as we begin the new year. So happy new year. Uh, There's no better place uh, to start the new year than to be here with the saints of God, to be able to center our attention on the Word of God as the Spirit of God moves in our hearts and applies the principles that we will share today. And so it is so good to begin the new year with you. And so we look forward to looking at this passage of Scripture, and it's more of a refresher course. I have preached on this a couple of times over the years. Uh, We're going to look at it in a little different way this morning, but this will not be an unfamiliar passage for you today, but I hope and trust that it will be enriching for us to be uh, pouring over these truths and plugging them into our lives as we begin the new year. Uh, I've never personally been a huge proponent of making New Year's resolutions, but I, I get it. Uh, I really do. I, I've made them over the years. Uh, the new year represents a new start, a new time to restructure priorities, a new time to refocus, an opportunity to put the past in the past and to begin a new future. And if the dawning of a new year helps us to do that, then there's certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, it can be a great thing if our resolutions are honoring to the Lord and they stick. I was wondering all this past month uh, what I wanted to do today. Did I want to preach a message that was tailored for the new year or just jump right back into the Gospel of John? And so I was mulling this over, thinking about it all uh, this past month as to what I wanted to do, And then I ran across this quote that pushed me over the edge, and the quote was from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who strongly recommended pastors preach a New Year's sermon, and he said this, a preacher who does not take advantage of these things is a fool. And I thought, well, I don't want to be a fool. Uh, Who am I to question one of the greatest preachers and authors of the 20th century? So here we are this morning. Uh, I want to take the opportunity today to encourage you and to challenge you as we begin the new year. And so the text that I've chosen is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. I want to read it to you. And then, like I said, I'd like to offer a refresher course this morning. Anyone who is certified in just about anything in this life has to continually go through refresher courses. And I think as Christians, uh, we need that. We need to have a refresher course uh, every now and again as it relates to walking in wisdom. And so that's what we hope to do today. So let me read the passage to you, then we'll pick it apart, and then we'll apply it. And so uh, I trust it'll be encouraging to you. Verse 15, so then be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now in a quick read of this, we see that there are a lot of moving parts here that we'll need to cover, but first we notice here Paul's use of the word walk right? This carries the idea of moving forward or progressing. And we're going to get to more of that in a moment. 
But before we do that, we need to understand what Paul is saying here in chapter 5 and verse 18 when he gives this command for Christians to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that upon conversion, the Holy Spirit of God indwells every true believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you have repented of your sin, you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, then the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Now, we know a lot about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Much of the New Testament speaks to that. And there was a huge change that happened at the Feast of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. In the Old Testament, we find that the Holy Spirit would come upon believers in a way to empower them to live in a certain capacity. The kings, for instance, were empowered by the Spirit of God as they ruled over Israel. But not every believer in the Old Testament, was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's what changed in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches that powerful sermon and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and immediately from heaven the Spirit of God rains down and he permanently indwells believers in Jesus Christ. And so every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ Since that time, since Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost, you have the Spirit of God within you. And so that's what we learn from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Spirit of God permanently indwells every believer. Earlier, we don't have time to go there, but earlier in this letter to the church at Ephesus, we also learn in verses uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 1, chapter 4 and verse 30, we also learn that all believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit at conversion. So again, when a person trusts in Christ and they're saved, they're converted, then the Spirit of God seals them. In other words, it's God's seal of possession on our life. We are His. No one can snatch us out of His hand. We are God's. And the Spirit is His seal of possession on our lives. So we're indwelt with the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. But he says here that we are to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. Believers who are indwelt by the Spirit, believers who have been sealed by the Spirit, are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And so what in the world does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, let me give you as good a definition as I can. The basic definition is to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. Obviously, there's an intentional surrendering that has to take place. But as a Christian repents of known sin in his or her life and surrenders to the control of the Holy Spirit who is in them, only then can a person be filled or controlled with the Spirit. And so I think it only makes sense that there must also be a saturation in the Word of God so that we would know what pleases God, right? Because the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cut through the bone and the marrow and reach our hearts. And so to be filled with the Spirit means that uh, we have surrendered to the control of the Spirit, saturating ourselves in the Word of God. So we're making progress with our passage, so let's keep going. 
Paul tells the church at Ephesus here that believers are to redeem the time. You see that? They're to make the most of their time. We're to make the most of our time as those who have been redeemed. And so those who have been redeemed are to redeem the time. The word redeem means to purchase or to buy back. Paul says the days are evil, so make the most of your time. And I think we would all echo that, right? The days are increasingly evil. And I thought that we were on a negative uh, trajectory years ago. I saw it. I knew it. I could see down the road that things were progressing in a negative fashion, but I honestly did not have any idea that it would go this fast. The days are increasingly evil. Paul says... It is God's will. It is God's desire that every person walk in wisdom by making the most of their time. And so we must drill down a little bit as to what biblical wisdom is and what is the antithesis of biblical wisdom. So biblical wisdom, if you're taking notes, it's a capacity of the mind that allows us to understand life from God's perspective. Okay, A capacity of the mind that allows us to understand life from God's perspective. Essentially, wisdom is the the application of knowledge. Now, from a secular viewpoint, we can can give an example here, and you'll, I hope, grasp the difference here. So, for example, knowledge is knowing how to use a gun. Okay? So, knowledge is knowing how to use a gun. Wisdom is knowing when to use it and when to keep it holstered. So God wants us to walk in wisdom. So we're not to be foolish, he says, but we're to understand the will of the Lord, which, which, which presupposes that the will of the Lord is understandable. The will of the Lord is understandable. Psalm 14 and verse 1 says this about the antithesis of wisdom, which is foolishness or um, the, the, the qualities of a fool, Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, A fool says in their heart, there is no God. There is no God. A fool is someone who disregards God and his word. And even says there is no God. So this is where it gets very interesting because... He's calling for us as Christians to be wise with the use of our times. He says, don't be foolish, don't be like a fool, but be wise in how you use your time. Fools take God out of the equation. And let me just say this, where we wouldn't be a prototypical fool because God has saved us and he's redeemed us and we're his, We wouldn't be a prototypical fool in that we would say that there is no God, as Psalm 14 verse 1 says, but we can act foolishly, which means that even in life, we can take God out of the equation, and that's when we act like a fool. When we take God out of the equation and we start to do things based upon our own understanding and how we view things and we take God out of the equation, we are acting just like a fool foolishly acting like the world. We're full of fools. 
So he's calling for us as Christians to be wise in the use of our time. Not foolish, but wise. Now, in the New Testament, there are two primary Greek words for time, uh, chronos and kairos. Okay, Chronos is where we get our English word chronology, and it's quantitative. Time is quantitative. Chronos is used 54 times in the New Testament. It refers to a specific amount of time, such as a day or an hour. 30 of the 54 times that it's used, it's translated time in the New American Standard Version of the Bible. A couple of examples of that outside of our passage, Acts 7, 23. But when he was approaching the age, chronos, of 40, it entered his mind to visit the brethren, the sons of Israel. Acts 13, verse 18 says, For a period, chronos, for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And so it's quantitative. It's chronological. As we take a look at the meaning of this command for us to redeem the time, this may surprise you, but the word used in Ephesians 5 here is not chronos, it's kairos. It changes everything. Paul's not saying that as a Christian you must sit down and have a schedule that is prioritized in minutes or hours or days. While there's nothing wrong with being scheduled and organized, we should be that. (laughs) That's not his point not his point. So if chronos is quantitative, kairos is qualitative. So kairos, this other Greek word for time, it's used 81 times in the New Testament, and it means an appointed time or an opportune moment. It carries the idea of taking advantage of an opportunity. Most of us, and me included, um, very chronos-oriented. You can ask my wife, (laughs) I view time most of the time. I view it quantitatively. There's only so much time, right? That's true. We recognize that the time that we do have is a gift from God, which we're to be thankful for. And we reflect back on 2022. We're thankful for all of the blessings. We're thankful for how God has worked in our lives. We're thankful for the time that we had together with loved ones and friends in the church. But what he's referring to here as it relates to um, using our time wisely to, to his glory, he's talking about this kairos mentality. Our, our chronos mindset can make us miss what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking advantage of the opportune times that are placed before us. Okay? It's different. Yes, we should be reliable. (laughs) We should be scheduled. Uh, Most of us, if we weren't that way, we wouldn't be able to function very well. If you want to read my random tips in the Grace Life Gazette, I talk about this just a little bit, our use of time. But we can be so scheduled, and hear me on this, we can be so scheduled that we fail to seize the opportunities that God has brought before us. Recently, I was meeting with somebody in a public place and talking about some things that were very important. And um, we got done. We were finished. And the person that I was meeting with left, and I was kind of hanging back a little bit, finishing up my 
Coke Zero, and a um, little plug for Coke Zero. Um, and so I was sitting there by myself, the other person had left, and uh, unbeknownst to me, and certainly unbeknownst to the person that I was meeting with, there was uh, another person that happened to be listening into our conversation. It was, was kind of weird. Um, so this lady comes over to me and she says, are you a minister? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am. And she said, well, I was, I'm sorry, but I was listening in a little bit to your conversation and I need help. I need help. And I said, well, um, what can I, what can I help you with? What can I do for you? Is there something that I can, that I can help you with? Now, full well knowing that I needed to be somewhere in about 15 minutes. Uh, we stopped our meeting, the, me and the person that was meeting, we stopped our meeting on time so I could get to where I need to go. And my wife can tell you I'm very chronos-oriented as it relates to that. But here is a woman that was broken. She was crying. She was telling me that she doesn't even live here. She lives in a different state. She came for some particular reason, and she's staying with her sister, and her life is a mess. I could have left. I could have said, hey, ma'am, I'm so sorry, because I probably never see this woman again in my life, right? Hey, I'm so sorry uh, that you're struggling, but I got to go. I have an appointment <laughs> that I need to meet, but I would have missed a Kairos opportunity to minister to this woman. You see how sometimes we can be so time-oriented that we skip or we miss out on things that God has brought our way. I mean, we, try, we believe that God is sovereign, right? And this is all going through my mind. This is, all, this is all in my head as I am dealing with this situation. I'm thinking quick. Okay, do I, what's more important? Do I go to the meeting or do I text him and say I'm going to be late? Do I deal with this lady who I'm never going to see again? Do I sit down with her? It's a woman. I don't like to meet with women alone. Fortunately, it was in a public place, so I was fine with it. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I sat down with her, and I listened to her, and I tried to help her because that was a kairos opportunity. So you see the difference? You see that we can be so wrapped around time, chronos opportunities, that we miss the kairos opportunities. This is what he's talking about here in the passage. So I could have either told her that I didn't have time to talk or just make it real quick or tell her, here's my card, you can call me. But an opportunity would have been missed to minister to a real-life person in a crucial time in her life. So do you see that here? This is what he's saying. We're to be careful how we walk, not as unwise men, in other words, not foolishly, but as wise. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this. He said, walk circumspectly, watching lest even in seeking one good thing you spoil another. In other words, if we walk wisely, we'll be careful not to let the good steal God's best. So walking in wisdom ties directly to the command in verse 18 where Paul says to be filled with the Spirit. 
So if we're filled with the Spirit, we'll be careful to walk wisely, seizing those opportunities that come our way. And by the way, this phrase, be careful, is in the present imperative, which means that we are to be on the alert. We're to be on the alert for opportune times. So speaking of these verses, Charles Hummel wrote that our greatest danger is letting the urgent things, the chronos things, crowd out the important things, (laughs) the, the kairos things. So the word redeem here is the Greek word ex agorazo, and it's used just four times in the New Testament, and it means to buy out of the marketplace. So the picture here of what he's sharing is of someone who is desirous of buying up the best bargains in the marketplace, being careful not to miss the most important opportunities. This is what he's calling for here. As we move into the new year, and if you're looking for uh, some wisdom, how to walk in wisdom in the new year, don't be so scheduled that you miss these kairos opportunities. Redeem, ex agorazo, to buy out of the marketplace. Um, some of you have been to Roots Farmer's Market. I love to go there Tuesdays, Mannheim. Uh, but I learned something. I learned something. Uh, it didn't take too long to learn this. Normally, people will go to Roots Farmer's Market during the morning, uh, first thing in the morning, get some fruit and vegetables, some what, you know, things, maybe even eat lunch there or so on. But um, there was a time where we needed to get some things, and we didn't have time to go uh, early in the morning, and so we went later at night. So 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. Let me just give you a tip. That's the time to go. Because all of the merchants, all of the people that have the stands, they're trying to get rid of things so they don't have to box them up and take them home with them. I mean, literally, and who needs 40 tomatoes? But we got 40, we had a box of 40 tomatoes for $5. So we have made it a practice, maybe once a month, once every six weeks or so, to go to Roots Farmer's Market to look for the best opportunities for our family. And that's what he's calling for here. Redeem, it's in the, it's, it's in the present tense. It, it calls for us to make it our lifestyle, our daily moment-by-moment practice, to buy up for ourselves the strategic opportunities which God providentially places in our, plat, in our path, all to his honor and to his glory with eternity in view. The great hymn writer John Wesley said to his wife, he said, redeem the time, catch the golden moments as they fly. So Paul's saying here in our passage, instead of killing time, redeem it. Instead of counting the days, make your days count. Someone once said, time's a strange commodity. We can't save it, retrieve it, relive it, stretch it, borrow it, loan it, stop it, or store it, but can only use it or lose it. You know the old Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. That's essentially what Paul's referring to here when he says to redeem the time. Seize the day, seize the moment, seize the opportunity. Let me show you a a couple of other examples of the use of kairos. Uh, Galatians 6.10 says, while we have opportunity, and that word is kairos, while we have this kairos opportunity, let us do good to all people, 
especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Colossians 4, 5 and 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of, and that making the most of is exodorazo, redeeming or to buy up, the opportunity, kairos, let your speech always be seasoned with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he says at the acceptable time, that's kairos, the opportune time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time, kairos. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so all of this pertains to Paul's initial call for us as God's people to walk in wisdom. Don't we want to do that? Don't we want to walk in wisdom? Do we want to be a fool? Do we want to live foolishly? Do we want to live our lives like the fool who disregards God, who goes about life using their own intellect, maybe the advice of other sinful people? Or do we want to anchor in what God wants us to do? And I am sure that you're like me, that we want to walk in wisdom. We want to walk in wisdom in in this life. And so what I'd like to do here is put a little bit more meat on the bones. I'd like to share with you seven ways that we are to walk in wisdom as we move into the new year. Okay? Seven ways, real quickly, but seven important ways that we're to walk in wisdom as we move into the new year. And the first one is this. We're to walk in newness of life. We're to walk in newness of life. Romans 6.4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. You might think, well, that sounds good, and it is. But think about the depth of it. Because we have died with Christ, we are to live like Christ. Paul says we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. And so as it relates to us, his death to sin is really twofold. First, by his death, Jesus satisfied the penalty of our sin, right? Our, our debt was paid. Everyone who is a sinner owes a debt to God that we cannot pay ourselves. And Jesus paid our death, debt. His death satisfied the penalty for our sin. His death and his subsequent resurrection propitiated, literally satisfied the Father's wrath against sin. And then second, his death broke the power of sin on our behalf. We are no longer a slave to sin. So why would we continue to go down that path as God's people? Why would we continue to live in sin? We've been rescued from sin. The penalty has been paid. The power of sin does not have final sway over our lives anymore as God's people. So why would we live like a fool? <laughs> Foolishly, like, like taking God out of the equation. We're to walk in newness of life. So all what Christ has done for us in, this, in his life, his death, his resurrection, it produces a new walk in us. Those who have been justified by God's grace, we are now to walk in newness of life. And so the first way that we're to walk in wisdom in the new year is that we're to walk in newness of life. 
Secondly, we're, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, verbatim. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. We're justified by faith, but we're also to live by faith. That's exactly what this passage says. The Christian life is a faith walk. We walk by faith and not by sight. And, and I want to I talk about that a little bit more because that, that seems like a phrase that we know, but have we really considered the depth of what that means? That we are to walk by faith, not by sight. When, when I was in high school, uh, this, was, uh, this is when all of the ropes courses were being developed. This was all new stuff. This is 40-some years ago. Uh, there was this thing where there was, uh, we were on this ropes course, and it was out in the woods, and really cool, rustic. Uh, but, you know, these are some challenging things that you have to do. And so a lot of them are group activities. So uh, there was this thing called the trust fall. Probably old news, but it was called the trust fall. So there were different stumps that you could go up, and then there would be a group that would form, and they would put their hands out like this. So there may be four on this side, four on this side. We'd all put our hands out. The person would walk up, boom, 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 walk up to the top of the uh, stump, and put their back to the group. And at the appropriate time, they would trust fall. They would fall backwards into the arms of the people, and we would catch them. Now, it's a little daunting. I was bigger than all of these people. I'm thinking, these people aren't going to be able to catch me. But it was all part of us learning what it means to trust, to have faith to walk by faith and not by sight. We couldn't see because we're facing the opposite direction. In reality, they could all be like, and they all move away. <laughs> the Christian life is the trust fall. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. Let me give you three examples of this, and there could be more, but these are the three that came to mind when I was uh, putting this together this week. Three examples of walking by faith and not by sight. First, faith in God's Word, um, essentially that God's Word is 100% true. We need to have faith that God's Word is true, because if we're going to be His people and we're going to follow what He wants us to follow in his word, we better be assured that the, it, this is true. There, there's truth here. And so I think that's the first example of walking by faith and not by sight, is trusting, having faith in the word of God. Secondly, faith in God's sovereign control over our lives. And I often remind Kathy when we're dealing with situations, we, we must practice what we believe. It's one thing to intellectually know theology. And honestly, when I was in Bible college for four years, there were times where I felt like the Bible was a textbook. And some of you who have been to Bible college, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, you carry your books to class, but the Bible is kind of another textbook. And it was really hard for me to separate that out because I would have courses on books of the Bible, and it was just like taking another book to class. 
But in the Bible, it's very clear that one of God's incommunicable attributes is that he is sovereign, which means he's in complete control over all things. Nothing escapes his control. He is over all things. He is sovereign. And I think that is another example of us walking by faith and not by sight. We need to have faith in God's sovereign control over our lives. So I tell Kathy all the time, look, we can't control what happens. We have no control over what other people do. We have no control over what happens in the world. So we must practice what we believe and trust in God. We must trust in our sovereign God. He's in control. He's got it. And I'm good with that. Totally good with that. So we need to have faith in God's word, faith in God's sovereign control over all things. And this is key that we must have faith that God is good, right? Romans 8, 28 tells us that he's working all things together for our good, for his glory, but for our good. He's working all of these things out. So even the things that we think are stinky that happen in our lives, God is working that out for our good. Maybe we need to go through something stinky. I don't know. God's sovereign. But we need to have faith that God is good. He has our best interest at heart. Number three, we are to walk by the Spirit. We're to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And this is an important distinction. that We're not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, which means that we need to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord and that our motivation is pure. This is a reminder that it's possible to outwardly, listen to this, It's possible to outwardly do the right thing, but inwardly we're doing it in the flesh for carnal reasons. It happens all the time. happens all the time. People say the right thing. People will then often do the right thing. But you know what God cares about? Why are you doing it? Isn't that what he was so disgusted with, with the Pharisees? He was so disgusted with the Pharisees who would say the right thing, pompously, arrogantly, say the right thing, follow it up with outward actions that look like they're saying saying this and they're doing this, and God looks right into their heart and goes, you people are like dead men's bones, whitewashed sepulchers. You see, we can say the right thing, we can do the right thing, and we can do it in the flesh. And God looks at it as filthy rags. See, God is concerned with the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And see, here's the problem with this. We can't look inside the people's hearts, right? We we. We can't look in and see. We don't have that x-ray vision that God has. So God knows your hearts today. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know you because you and I can fool ourselves into thinking (laughs) that we 
are doing things in the spirit when we're really doing them in the flesh. Number four, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And this helps me sometimes to think about who I represent. Do you ever think about that? I, you know, when I was in high school, I played all kinds of sports. When I was in college, I played sports. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's an element to when you are participating in an athletic contest, you're representing people. So when I would go out and play in a college basketball game, I was representing my family. I didn't want to bring shame to my family by acting like a fool or doing this or that or whatever. I'm representing my coach, my teammates. I'm representing the school that we go to, which is a ministry school. So if the players would go out and they would act like fools on the court, how do you think that's going to look for the school who is supposed to be training people for ministry or to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Think about who you represent. As you go throughout your day, who are you representing? We represent the Lord. I've never really gravitated toward this woe is me Christianity. I never have. I've always been a glass half full guy. Always have. My whole life. You know those kind of people who are constantly talking about how unworthy they are? They're so fixated upon themselves, they're no earthly good. They always have a negative bent toward just about everything. Terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Hey, we're, we are undeserving sinners saved by the grace of God. We get it. We understand it. But who are we representing? We're representing the God of the universe, Christ, who is in us. <laughs> Number five, we're to walk in the way that Jesus walked. 1 John 2, 6 says, The one who says that he remains in him ought he himself also walk just as he walked. So you want to know how to walk in wisdom in the new year? Walk the way that Jesus walked. We're to be imitators of Christ, right? Imitators of Jesus, who we represent. We took on his name. We're Christians. So we're to walk in the way that Jesus walked. How do we know how Jesus walked? This is why we're going through the Gospel of John. Because we're, 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 we're going to view his life on the earth. And we want to walk the way that he walked. Number six, we're to walk in good works. We're to walk in good works. How are we to walk in wisdom in the new year? We're to walk in good works. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship. In other words, he created us, created in Jesus Christ for good works, he says, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So good works are not the root of our salvation. They're the fruit of our salvation. So when James says in his epistle, faith without works is dead, he's talking about a faith that doesn't produce good works. Not an authentic faith. Because an authentic faith produces good works. The good works don't save us. How good would you have to be for it to tip the scales for you to be 
viewed in a favorable light by God based upon what you do. Well, we don't present our own righteousness to God. As I said earlier, our, our, our works, our attempts to do that are like dirty rags to God. Don't do that, he says. Don't try to do that. We present the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died in our place, who imputed his righteousness on our account, and our sin was put on his account. And so we present the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we can stand before God, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ and what he has done and who he is. And so we're to walk in good works. And I think it's okay for us to think about it in that way. In other words, what is being produced in our life? We're to walk in newness of life. That, that newness produces a walk in good works. And so you ask yourself the question, what kind of works am I producing? Are they good in the sight of God? And then finally, the capstone of all this, number seven, we're to walk in love. We're to walk in love. If you're still in Ephesians 5, uh, look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. One of my favorite verses because it is so illustrative, descriptive of how God views our life. In other words, he, he puts our life through the smell test. How many of you had the COVID virus at some point? Isn't it the craziest thing? I never talk about politics in the pulpit, but I'm just going to say this. If that thing wasn't created in a laboratory, I'd be shocked. If that was just a natural virus, I'd never seen anything like it. Kathy was really ill, and she was in bed for a couple of weeks. She had the virus. She was tested for it. Uh, I was like this with her. So I stayed on one side of the house, and she stayed on the other side of the house. I would slide food underneath the thing, and, uh, but I wanted no part of it. So I endured, and I didn't get it. And so she's better, and I'm feeling like, man, I, I, I didn't get this thing. And then all of a sudden, I uh, was putting on a shot of cologne in the morning, and I thought, I can't smell it. And so now I'm thinking, oh, are you kidding me? I have this thing. So I went down, <laughs> went to the refrigerator, got something out, started chewing on it. Can't taste it. I start smelling everything. I can't smell a thing. If that thing wasn't created in a laboratory, I'm, uh, so I lost my smell, but I didn't get really sick. It was a day or two for me. It was nothing. I think we, we can ask the question, where do we fall on the smell test as it relates to walking in love in the way that Christ walked in love? Where do we fall? Where do we fall on the smell test? Bluntly, does our life stink? Or is it as Paul says, a fragrant aroma in the nostrils 
of God. God's sniffing down. He's got a great smeller, by the way. He sniffs down. What a fragrant aroma. This person's life smells good to me. This one, not so much. What's the difference? Are we walking in wisdom in accordance to what His Word says? Or are we like the fool? Doing things our own way, for our own purposes, in our own timing. As we move into the new year, if we're looking for something to hang our hat on, we want to walk into the new year in wisdom. In wisdom. With God in the equation in every aspect of our life. Being filled with the Spirit. Making the most of our time. Looking for, taking advantage of those God-ordained opportunities that are brought our way. I, I love this passage of Scripture. I couldn't think of anything better to share as we move into the new year. I think all of us would say we want to walk in wisdom, Lord. We want our lives to smell good before you. And so that is our charge. That's what we want to hang our hat on uh, this morning from this passage. Walking in wisdom in the new year. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. It's penetrating for sure. Uh, it hits us right where we need to be hit. And uh, again, we have uh, been hit today, which is good. We need to absorb your word. We need to understand it as it is written, in the context it's written, for our edification, and then we must be obedient. And so, Lord, we want to walk in wisdom as we begin the new year. Thank you for another year. You've given us another start to another year for us to honor you and obey you and live for you, to minister to other people, to see even the stuff that goes on in our world in a positive light that you are in control of these things. So we navigate knowing that you are in control. Nothing escapes your control. But you hold us accountable for how we live. And so Lord, may we live in a way that would honor you in this life. So Lord, we want to walk in wisdom in the new year. Thank you for all that you're doing in and among us. In Jesus' name, amen.